Okay, we're going to go ahead and start with the prayer. And uh, Bob, would you lead us tonight? Sure. Right. Heavenly Father, please uh, be with us tonight, Lord, as we look into your word and keep us attentive. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for Bob and what he's taught us this year and, and the way he's opened up the book of Psalms for us. Lord, keep us attentive and uh, keep us focused on his work. So let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, last week we looked at Psalm 2. I think that's one of the... You know, there are a few psalms that are key psalms. That's Psalm 1, which we'll look at tonight. We've already touched on Psalm 23, so we'll look at another song of confidence. Psalm 51, Psalm 30, 32. Uh, those are kind of the highlights of, of the Psalter. I like... Uh, I've always been intrigued by Psalm 137 uh, just because it sounds so ironic in our day when the Muslim world raised up and you know the psalm writer saying even dashed your children against the rocks. Now I'm not for that so I hope when you leave you don't say that. But can I say if you find the God's justice God has the right to say who and when is to be judged and what way he wants to be judged. Now, if we're soft on that, then it will bother us. But I'm not very soft on it. <laughs> so, it, I mean, I understand. But I don't know that as a, as a uh, human being I can just come out and say that. I would have to have special direction to the Lord. And I don't have it. The last I've seen, he hasn't been speaking directly for 2,000 years now. I think the message we needed to hear was in the sun. And that's what we looked at last week with Psalm 2. So tonight, we want to look at uh, page uh, 45. And let's, let's also turn in our Bible at the same time to Psalm 121. Psalm 121. find it here. I get lost in Psalm 119 when I turn there. I'm going from the front to the middle. But uh, the Psalms of Trust are dominated by their emphasis on an unwavering trust in God's greatness and goodness. God's greatness is one of His characteristics that subsumes a lot of attributes. God's goodness does likewise. God's greatness relates to his being. How long did they have you with us? Thank you. Uh, this, uh, the greatness focuses on that which relates to his, to his basic being. He's, uh, he doesn't share his attributes of greatness with anybody. <coughs> his goodness relates to how he functions in relationship to creation. And there is a difference. God in himself is, can I say, all in all? Isn't that what Paul says in the New Testament? He is a God who's great in his omnipresence, omniscience, uh, can I say, in his coordination. Uh, so God's greatness means this is what he is in his basic being. 
The goodness relates to how he relates to the created order, how he shows compassion on weak people like you and I, how uh, he uh, looks, can I say, uh, with considerable compassion, even with the wicked because he doesn't kill them immediately. So all those things relate to uh, God's goodness. So it's usually related to how he relates to the created order, especially man. So this psalm celebrating, or these psalms celebrate that. Uh, some of the metaphors that are used to describe the Lord are refuge, rock, help, and shepherd. These terms point to a God who is more than capable and desirous of taking care of his people. Thus, the tone of these psalms ring out with a sense of security that only God can produce. Uh, that is that is the point of a psalm of confidence, psalm of trust. It creates security. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from something of the old school. I'm the figure. I'm 61. But I remember when I first went into ministry, the big thing for preachers was to crucify their people. You just lay them out. And saints of God felt good when they'd been laid out. <laughs> I can remember wondering about that from time to time. I had a real good friend who was really good at that. In fact, he had a Sunday school teacher that wasn't teaching the way he should be. And he'd always leave after Sunday school and go home. And he said, uh, you know, Brother So-and-so, he has been a Sunday school teacher here. But when he shows up next week, I'll be there taking his place. <laughs> That's hard line. I never crossed them. <laughs> well, you know, that's. I think we missed the point. There are many things in Scripture, though, that encourage the saints. And for some reason or another, uh, we don't like to... I mean, I shouldn't say we. I think Christianity has changed quite a bit, even with us who are so-called fundamentalists. I'm trying to nail down what the term means in these latter days. But, you know, uh, can I, I, I call them historic or orthodox fundamentalists. Because you have the house type of fundamentalists, they are not orthodox. So we're a little bit more conservative than conservative evangelicals. But we believe the same, friends. Uh, so to me, there's been a change because we do see that there is a place to encourage the people of God. To me, what I want to do that is I turn to the Psalms of Confidence because they're rich in doing this. Notice, I make a few statements here about some of the psalms. Though enemies surround David in Psalm 11, verse 2. Remember Psalm 23, verse 4? Uh, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In the midst of that, David asserts his unreserved trust in the Lord. And from his God, he finds security. I mean, what greater trust is it we could, uh, can we interpret Psalm 23, verse 1 a little bit? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's encouraging. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
That's encouraging. Well, I think God put these types of psalms in there to encourage us. And we need to balance that out. Remember the lament psalms? One-third of the Psalter is a lament psalm. So they have some deep discouragement. But these psalms really come about when they've gone through suffering, trials, and even sometimes when you know, life's just been generally good and they're pondering the great providence of God. But it's, it's meant to stimulate people to feel the love of God, to be encouraged by Him. Uh, psalm 131, the psalmist's submissive trust in his Lord is graphically compared to a weaned child and his mother. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Friends, what greater picture of security? So that's what these psalms are about. Uh, since I've touched on Psalm 23, I mean, by the way, I've designed my notes. I intentionally commented on it early on. But I want to look at another psalm of trust, and that's Psalm 121. This is a, a very good psalm. Look at page 46 and Psalm 121. Look at the literary and thematic elements of Psalm 121. Look at verses 1 and 2. We see this introductory expression of trust in the Lord's protection. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's interesting how he comes back to this thing of creation again. You'll see that theme in the Psalms quite a bit. But notice he looks up at the hills. Well, if you notice the superscription here, this is one of the Psalms of the Sense. Psalms 120 to 134 called Psalms of the Sense. When the Israelites would travel to Jerusalem, uh, they would make these uh, triennial tracks there. and It's it's pretty dangerous to some of those hills. Uh, you know, if any of you have been to Israel and you've done some hiking around, I, I think a lot of hoodlums could be contained up there. In uh, fact, to me, it's one of the places where I would think this could be grave danger. So, when they're traveling, one of the things they're doing is they're traveling to Jerusalem. They do look at the hills. And there are hoodlums, gangsters, uh, those sorts of people. Can I say even some people from Washington, D.C.? <laughs> and they look up their eyes to the hills. And notice what he says. He says, where does my help come from? It's really from the Lord. Now, what type of Lord do we have? He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. May I say, that's real trust? That's real security? Because the God who made the material world, out of the immaterial resources of His triune greatness, He created all the material creation. There was nothing, and then He spoke it into existence. Friends, that should boggle any person's mind. Uh, you know, have you ever seen somebody create something out of nothing? I haven't. 
I've never kept it because I fear it was sheer stupidity. But when I read these evolutionary people, <laughs> I think they believe it. Well, see, that's, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, there's a number of events that celebrate his greatness. Creation is one. Another one's the deliverance from Egypt. Another one's Israel's or Judah's return from Babylon. Now, in the New Testament, the greatest encouragement of God's power is Christ. It's, it's an issue of his justice and yet his grace. And so, when we look at these things, that's our God. And as I pondered, I mean, I understand, I mean, I do understand what the Bible teaches about the virgin birth. I still can't explain it. <laughs> but, can I say that's a miracle? When God takes the Israelites out of Egypt, remember the hardening uh, of Pharaoh's heart? and all the judgments God's rains down on them. Uh, may I say that was stupendous power? Since Israel was being delivered, they look back to that. And when Israel comes from Babylon, they see the handiwork of God. However, there's miraculous things that go on with that deliverance, but it's really not like when they were in Egypt. You know, when you look at those plagues, you know, I know some people like to soften the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God has to give him a chance. And then after he gave him a chance, then he judged them in such a way that he couldn't do anything but sin. Well, friends, I, I completely disagree with that. Completely. In fact, I have a journal article coming out in our journal that relates to that. But it does seem to me that God's course of action with Pharaoh shows that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What we do forget is that Pharaoh was partook of divinity. So, it's not like he was the average routine sinner, but can I say that uh, all our hearts are hard until we come to Christ? But, yes, what do you mean he partook of divinity? Well, the, both in Egypt and the kings in... Uh, Mesopotamia, they are an extension of the various gods, or usually a chief god. Uh, see, God had handed the created order over to Pharaoh. He is his representative, and uh, they'll talk about this, uh, can I say, social or cosmic equality, ma'at. Uh, in Babylon, the king there, also when he becomes king, they would go through this enthronement <coughs> ritual where he's declared a God. <coughs> so I don't think, sometimes we Americans, we don't realize how pagan uh, the pharaohs and the kings were. They had, I mean, remember Saddam Hussein? That was the same thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, Pharaoh was on that order. He, if he wanted somebody killed, he'd be king he'd be killed. Whatever he wanted, he got because he was considered an extension of deity. They'll refer to him as the Son of God. So what they mean by the Son of God and what we mean by sons of God are two different things. So uh, 
Yeah, when I went to Grace Seminary, the first class I had was a class called Hebrew Exegesis of Job. And for the first, you know, we had a class that was an introduction to the course, but for the next period, when we came back a week later, we had to do an outline of the book of Job, uh, uh, trace the contours of the theology of the book of Job, then compare uh, four pieces of Babylonian literature and Egyptian literature where they have their Job and types. So we had to compare the theology. I remember I put in 60 hours of work, 40 to 60 hours of work for that first assignment. I remember telling my wife, saying, I can't make it to this program. <laughs> I'm born out and we've only just begun. <laughs> well, in some sense, that was very good. In another sense, I think it was a little excessive. In fact, I think it was very excessive, quite frankly. <laughs> but uh, it, it really entrenched in my mind how wicked the kings were. Uh, but unfortunately, in evangelicalism today, uh, not not your conservative evangelicals, but guys like uh, Bruce Walkey, Tremper Longman, Peter Enns, they reinterpret the early chapters of Genesis by this ancient Near Eastern stuff. That's what I don't understand. I understand the framing of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession, it was about putting scripture with scripture and deriving propositions. It wasn't about putting scripture with ancient Near Eastern myths. Mm -hmm. This is a new stroke, and I think ultimately it, it uh, really spells the doom for evangelicalism because they buy into this stuff. And pretty soon, you're no longer evangelical. I know what Tremper Longman lost his job. Peter Enns was fired from Westminster. Um, I, wherever Walkie was teaching as an adjunct, he lost his job there. So fortunately, there are some places that are rising up to say, we're not going this route. Mm -hmm. So, But most places are not that way. So that's, to me, the big concern for evangelicalism. It just seems we've got the wrong foundation when it's danger nears to miss. So one of the things with the THD program, you have to become acquainted with that. It was a little too much for my blood but I had to do it in order to get my degree. I remember my wife said one time when I was taking hieroglyphics, I don't know if you've ever seen hieroglyphics, but this is crazy writing. And it's a combination of pictures and sometimes alphabetic script. But quite often, say for the sun god Ra, you'll have two signs for R and the one for the I. But then you'll also have another sign that's a pictogram. So you'll have mix, a mixture of single continents, pictograms, sometimes there's uh, tri-continents, and they're all mixed together. I mean, this was like, I mean, in some sense I liked it, but in other senses it just took a lot of time, because most of the stuff your dictionaries are in German, and my German was pretty weak. So I just wanted to distance myself. But the one advantage is that I had to become familiar with Egypt. And I'm familiar enough to know with it. If we had ever done a THD program, and since we're all getting older, I don't think it's going to happen, we, we determined that, uh, you know, our 
the languages that we require of the students is that they have to master Hebrew and Greek. Why worry about French, German, Egyptian, uh, Sumerian? It seems like if we want to be biblical scholars, we should be able to pick up our Greek New Testament and read it, and our Hebrew Old Testament. But uh, those things are passing us by them. The faculty who came, Dr. Rice's years, you all were there, the Davis were there. I was the young kid. That was back in the days when I had a full head of hair. And I did have a good set of lungs and people might hear me hollering at my children. My sons, I don't think I hollered at my daughter much. Because she would, if I looked at her, she'd cry. <laughs> she was pretty easy. But uh, my, my sons could. My youngest son was a troublemaker. And my middle son was always getting him out of trouble. And, you know, it, it took Joshua to get to be about 19. And he says, you know, I'm glad for my brother because many times on the playground, he's protected me from those kids where Josh would usually whip off and Bob would have to finish it. So, you know, he did have a good big brother. <laughs> but I, I can remember going after those kids and they get in fist fights in the backyard and I tell my wife, just leave them alone. Most of the time Josh would started it and I figured let Bob finish it. So he was. <laughs> but she never liked but there always was a certain point when they're drawing blood. When I could come out and, uh, I mean, I, I could holler pretty loud. Well, as you get older, you lose those things. That's just part of age. Uh, so now I'm pretty mellow. But back in those days, I wasn't that mellow. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's the way it is with God's providence. We all get older. We learn from our mistakes. And one of the things... I think I made with raising our children. I should have spent more time encouraging them. You know, I was probably a little too hard-hearted at times. But Mr. Biggs thought they had it coming. <laughs> I can remember him talking to me a couple times. <laughs> and he remembers it too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I do think at this, as you mature, you try to compare scripture with scripture, we we really have not done enough to use scripture to encourage other believers when they're suffering. To me, the Psalms I go to always in those times are the book of Psalms. Psalm 23 is one of the first ones I go to. Psalm 11 is another one. Psalm 121 is another one. So they do encourage the people of God. And uh, we can see this uh, expression of trust here. And notice it's tied to God's power. Then notice as he goes on, notice how he catalogs the activities, his character, his protecting character and activity. We looked at a little bit of this in Psalm 23 because it catalogs God's various works in David's life. So here, verse 3 he says, uh, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. 
The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, notice there's a little bit of hyperbole here. The moon doesn't really harm us. However, it's when the moon's out is when we have many of those clandestine activities. Uh, the sun's not always a good thing. I've been to Israel. It can't harm you. And that's what he's referring to here. He'll protect you. So get yourself a good hat and that's part of God's protection. Uh, but, but notice when he says he doesn't sleep nor slumber. Think about that for a minute. God never sleeps. How long can you go without sleeping? You know, I can... You know, I... I used to be able to run on very little sleep. You know, I have to sleep more today, but... Um, if I would go without sleep, and I've pulled many, pretty much all-nighters studying, my head hurts. Uh, it's... I don't even think straight. And you're the same way. But God never sleeps nor slumber. He doesn't have crazy thoughts. He knows exactly what he's doing. So the point is, this is an outstanding poetic expression of God's omniscience. Verse 5 is an outstanding example of God's watch care over his people. So the catalog here he, he's described as the one who watches over them. In the New American Standard Bible, he's described as a keeper. Notice verses 7 to 8 then. Notice the concluding expression of trust in the Lord's protection. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He watches over your life. So notice what he said in verses 3 through 6. That's a cataloging. But notice verse 7. He's summarizing it all. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He watches over your life. Now, understand when he uses all. This doesn't mean uh, necessarily everyone, every harm. It's all kinds of harm. It does, obviously... There is that harm that comes when we're taken home to glory. So, obviously there's a terminal point in this life. But you know, it's as if the psalmist thought of that. Look at the last verse. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. So the psalmist summarizes in verse 7 and maintains that uh, God's going to protect us from all kinds of harm. He watches over our life. But furthermore, He watches over your coming and going, even driving down the, the interstates of Detroit. Uh, God's there. I may have a hissy fit sometimes, but uh, who hasn't? <laughs> Everybody gets road rage from time to time. Uh, so, it, well, my, my wife says she doesn't, but I think when I'm not there, she probably does. <laughs> oh. But notice, what happens if you do get run off the road and die? Both now and forevermore. We die because God's ordained for us to die. 
but that's just a stepping stone into his greater watch care with all eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And furthermore, all those little things we say that we need to know when we get to heaven, God probably doesn't care about. I think we'll be consumed with knowing God. And that's the way I think, I mean, to me, that's glory. We're no longer worried about how our foot got stubbed or how we lost our temper or something like that. Uh, it is under the blood. And uh, we will be consumed with knowing our Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. And friends, what better does it get than that? Now, I'm not looking to get on the next train out of here, though. <laughs> but I think when it's that time, that should be our hope of confidence. So, notice I summarized the other Psalms. I list all the Psalms of confidence with two. And then the content of Psalm 121. Notice I give you the big idea for the Psalm again. In spite of the obstacles and serving God. Now, remember, they're traveling in the Psalm. They do know there's hoodlums in those hills. In spite of that obstacle and others, in fact, he says he's going to keep us from all harm. Keep the eye of faith on God and not the obstacles. Your problem and my problem is, is that we get hung up on the obstacles. Somehow, I hope we can grow in grace so that we take our eyes off the obstacle and keep them on God. I'm not there yet, though. That's, that's still hard. The obstacles hang me up. And, uh, you know, that's the weakness of, uh, can I say, my sin nature. Uh, so, I think growth and grace is that we become less focused on the obstacles and more focused on the God of grace. So that's where he wants to move us to. So that's the big idea. I then give you an outline for the passage, typical of all the ones that we've gone through. So that's Psalm 121. Now, have any questions on that? Well, that's a good psalm. I hope you can use it. Uh, let's look at, at the wisdom psalms. Now, uh, we conclude with this. Although the Psalter begins with Psalm 1, but this is not uh, you know there's not a whole lot of wisdom psalms in the psalms but wisdom psalms share common features with Old Testament wisdom literature such as Job, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes they have a didactic thrust and they emphasize the Torah as fundamental for blessing now today we would say the whole counsel of God uh, in addition, they contrast the lifestyle of the righteous with that of the wicked. Two rhetorical, those are literary features that dominate this genre, are a pronouncement of blessing and the use of this like or as. So those are literary items. I think our focus should be on the content of the psalm. So we're going to look at Psalm 1, but may I make a comparison with the book of Proverbs? Uh, if you've read the book of Proverbs, what it is is it's a treatise that contrasts 
two ways of living. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. I would understand that uh, the Solomon, he wrote the bulk of the book of Proverbs. He's trying to write this to encourage his, uh, can I say, his growing lot in life. And when you have a thousand wives, can I say, I think he had a lot of children. <laughs> think so? <laughs> I don't know, did you see that guy on, uh, what was it? 2020 or something when Clinton was president or his Clinton and they were interviewing him about his his many wives uh, am, am I the only one that's been that old but well, they, we were talking about it at the seminary <laughs> because this is the U.S. currently it's illegal for polygamy however Hold on to your hats because I think if you get a second term of Obama, I think we're headed back that way. Because once you give up the Judeo-Christian ethic, what's to keep us from going back to polygamy? I don't think there's anything that holds us back. I mean, when you have civil unions, good night. That's that's completely contrary to nature. Well, multiple wives is not. I mean, at least it's a man woman relationship and there's a contract but you know I think the ideal is monogamy uh, but nevertheless what's to keep us from becoming polygamous oh can I say my wife <laughs> <laughs> she would give Obama peace of her mind <laughs> so I remember I remember watching this guy you know he's 50 and I think at the time I was about 50 and he's got five wives and I'm saying them. I'm, te- I'm joking with my wife now. So don't misunderstand. I said, this guy's king. I mean, he's got the life of Riley. Because <laughs> they're interviewing his wife's wives, and they range from 29 to 20. And I said, wow. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> I think my wife, she threw a pillow at me. <laughs> But you know, the the next scene was they moved to this playground. Twenty nine children. And I said, Dear, I take back everything I said. <laughs> that would be purgatory. And I don't believe in purgatory. <laughs> but you know, sure enough he was busted. He needed to be. How can you flaunt being polygamous when our laws are opposed to it? But maybe they can when he's out of prison, I suspect he's out now, maybe he can go back for a rerun in the next four years after this. So, anyway, I'm not very positive about where we're headed. Once you lose a moral foundation in the country, the Judeo-Christian ethic, look at Islam. So, that may change. So, but I can say, I'm going down kicking. (laughs) My wife's going to kick me if I don't get (laughs) And probably your wife will too. I said, you wouldn't put up with that garbage, would you? <laughs> Not for one minute. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> Ron thinks she would. <laughs> he, he's joking. Ron, I don't, she helps with the laundry. Well, <laughs> she helps with the laundry. <laughs> well, that is a key point. <laughs> but I tried to do laundry. My wife always gets mad because my shirts are never ironed quite right. 
Now, what I haven't told her, I do know how to iron. <laughs> and what I tried to minimize when I I was an Eagle Boy Scout and I lived in a tent two summers in a or in a, two summers in a tent and I taught the cooking and camping merit merit badge. You know, I've cooked meals on an open fire. Uh, I've made pies. I <laughs> so but when I get married I just said, you know, I'm just not telling my wife that. She's a good cook. I don't want her to get deceived into thinking I'm a good cook. But, you know, uh, just keep that our secret. And just, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, cut that out. <laughs> but those are the great things about marriage. <laughs> but I do think that she can't do. So I think these things balance out. Uh, I don't see her out shoveling the snow. <laughs> Cutting the grass. So, anyway, well, we need to. So we're back to the two ways of of living: the way of godliness and the way of ungodliness. Now, what we see with the literary elements, you see the way of the godly in verses one to three. Let me put that here. Psalms. My notes are nasty. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now, uh, here, I think we can safely say the subject of the first three verses is the godly man. Now, he doesn't use godly in verse 1, but can I say that's my shorthand for saying this is the guy who doesn't walk with the advice of the wicked, doesn't trot along with the sinners, he doesn't even sit in their seats. His life's in the law of the Lord. So the word godly is not used, but that's that's the basic idea. Uh, notice furthermore, uh, people often misunderstand. In fact, I think commentators have misunderstood verses 1 to 3. In particular, verse 1. What they'll say is there's a progression of thought. The psalmist moves to a low point, then to a lower point, to the lowest point. Now, I don't think that's the best way to interpret that, though. The reason why, notice how the verse starts. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who, number one, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They're not his advisors. That's the point. So he's blessed because he is not using them as his advisors or stand in the way of sinners. You know, you're standing on the road, the path of sinners. Well, he's blessed because he doesn't do that. 
Further notice, he's blessed because he doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. Now, sitting often is a, t is a concept of remaining, so I understand why they see a threefold downward progression. But the point is, the man is blessed if he cuts it off at any of the points. He's blessed. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Now, the reason for his being blessed, you know, verses, verse 1 is what I we could describe as his approach to separatism. And I think it's a good approach. Whatever avenues that are going to influence us negatively, our objective is to cut it off. But the key is this, its foundation. Verse 2. That's the real key. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now, day and night is a way of saying this is his pattern. So he meditates day and night. But let's think about that for a minute. Does he quit his job? You know, renounce his family obligations and just study the Bible all day? I don't think that would be because he couldn't be a godly Jew. This is to say his pattern is that he's consistently meditating on the Word of God. You know, he may memorize something, ponder it, or ponder it when we're driving, uh, when we're uh, with our family. These are times we do it, but it doesn't say he does it all day long. It's his pattern of life. That's the point. So notice, how do you know what to avoid? May I say it's founded in the Word of God? That Word that we're meditating on, that's our delight. That's what we want to do. So here, I think the real foundation is verse 2. Um, you know, I remember years back when I was, I think, 26. I was pastoring a church at that point. The only church I've ever pastored. I pastored for three years from 25 to 27. And I often say, that group of 100 people were crazy enough to vote in a kid 25. And I was crazy enough to accept it. I mean, that's just unbelievable. We've got 25-year-olds in our seminary. I'm not voting them in as pastor. <laughs> but we did vote in a pretty young one. <laughs> I think, what, wasn't Pastor going 28? Yeah, I know. Well, I know he's a, I know he's past 25 because he, he wouldn't have the support of some people. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was pretty young, especially with that size church. This church I have is only 100. That, I mean, about 120, 130, but uh, you know, I can remember when I was pastoring there, I had a brother-in-law brother who lived in Illinois. It was a church of 300, so I had this little church of 100. I'm 26, and you know, I figured I was destined for higher heights. So I get this letter from the church, and uh, you know, I, it's 20 pages of things I don't do, people I avoid. And I think at the time, because it was just basically my wife and I were just struggling to survive, I didn't do anything. <laughs> but I remember I was distressed. They didn't ask me once for my doctrinal position. So I was arrogant. I wrote them a letter and I said, you know, well, I sent back this 
things of people I avoid and things I don't do and stuff like that. I said, officer, I did send that back. I wouldn't fill it out, and I sent him my doctrinal statement. And I said, you know, your church can have a split eventually because you have no concern about doctrine. And sure enough, it did. In fact, my brother-in-law was disciplined out because they maintained he was demon-possessed. <laughs> I mean, go figure. Well, I'm glad they weren't interested in me. But I could chalk it up when the focus is strictly on separatism. You're going to have problems. The Bible is much more than that. Um, but may I say, verse 2 points to that. His delight is in the law of the Lord. For him, that would have been the first five books of the Bible. Joshua may have been thrown in at this time. But the canon is not complete. Today, I think God would say, blessed is the man whose delight is in the Protestant canon. I mean, the, uh, the 66 books of the Bible. That's the foundation. And it's from that foundation we formulate what we believe and what we do. Uh, everybody in time refines themselves theologically. There's some things that you recognize, as I do, that were stupid when I was younger. Um, some things I thought were pretty good. <coughs> it was a mixed bag. But you know the positive thing? I was concerned about what Scripture taught. So to me, that's where you want to, you know, if somebody's heart's there, they don't have to agree with you on everything. But it does seem to me that we can walk together if we're really able to, uh, you know, can I say rebut one another times? And yet rejoice at other times? <laughs> But somewhere along the line, we lose sight of that. Now, I don't. I don't think your church has lost sight of it, and I don't think interstate. I think what God has done with our current pastor is amazing, and uh, so we we do thank God for that. That doesn't mean that we always agree. <laughs> but I, I've seen Dr. Rice in meetings, and I've seen Pastor Dorn when he was upset. <laughs> but there's a vast difference. Vast difference. <laughs> so, but I appreciate it both men. I just, you know, I think inner city has grown in many, many ways. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that we thank God for grace in your church and our church. So, we are in a place where we can study scripture together. And there are some things we can disagree on. But there are some things we can't disagree on. And that does require sometimes severing somebody from a local assembly. So it's not all hunky-dory. But I think of the great truths of Scripture. I, would, I think communities pretty much like inner city. The only difference is that our pastor still preaches on a tie on Sunday morning and Sunday night. But his staff preaches without ties on Wednesday. I've seen the show up in Blue Jeans. I've seen Dave Dorn show up in Blue Jeans on a Wednesday night. So I don't know that all those things are etched in stone, but, you know, I've spoken at churches where, you know, you don't wear a tie. That's no longer appropriate. Uh, I know I was at a church recently where they used the King James Version, and I've spoken there many times, and I used my NIV. Because uh, I knew the pastor, the only reason why I still continued with this because he had some people who came James only. 
So I figured, well, let them bring it on. <laughs> and somebody did, and I was able to kind of put it politely back in his face. And, uh, you know, this thing about wearing a tie, I wore it Sunday morning, but Sunday night I didn't wear it. I figured, this is a casual crowd. Why am I the one who has to be dressed up? So now he may never have me back, but I do think dress standards have changed. So, I mean, if you want to wear a tie like Ron Biggs, that's fine. I'm more like a Ken Brown. <laughs> but Ron's a year or two older, I think. You're a year or two older than me. Do <laughs> you want to know what office I'm running for next year? <laughs> so those things have changed, but still our basic concern to understand Scripture, to carry out the gospel mandate, that is the same. And these things are good, and that is why we can cooperate on things. So I thank God for those errors, but may I say, we're living the Psalm 1, Verses 1 to 3, like that, that. Notice what the blessings are here. When somebody's in the Word of God and applying it, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither. So notice here, he goes to uh, using uh, some of the flora, the fruit, a leaf, they don't wither. The fruit bears fruit when it's supposed to. But notice the real point is the last part of verse 3. Whatever he does, he prospers. Now we do need to make a distinction between the Old Testament saints and, and us. They, if you read Deuteronomy 28, let's see, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30, you'll notice the blessings that go with being a godly person includes having uh, your crop, your barns full, uh, your coke baths overflowing. Oh, I'm sorry, they didn't use coke in this day. But I am a teetotaler, so I'll use coke. <laughs> um, but those types of things were promised. Uh, you know, they promised them uh, that their animals would reproduce, and they promised the man and his woman that they would be able to be involved with Planned Parenthood. In Israel, they had Planned Parenthood. Psalm 127. Uh, what is it? It's the principle of the more merrier. <laughs> yeah, the quiverful. I just call it the more merrier principle. Well, that's Planned Parenthood. So, <laughs> the plan is for you just to keep on reproducing. <laughs> well, that's what involved the godly life in the Old Testament. But friends, that's not the case in the New Testament. If you look very carefully at it, there's only one place that promises or alludes to prosperity. I think it's 2nd or 3rd John. Uh, John prays that uh, I think it's Gaius will prosper as his soul prospers, but that's the only place. What, what where God blesses us today is growth and fruit of the Spirit.
doctrinal purity. Uh, those are the primary areas where God blesses us. I think we pray too much for financial needs. I'm not immune from that, but you know, it does seem as as I've aged and taught at a seminar for a while, and especially if worked with Chinese people, uh, they don't understand us. They think, uh, they think we believe too much in prosperity. Well, we do. But I do think that's not in the New Testament. So I don't look for that. I don't pray for that. I think prosperity is for us to prosper in Jesus, not the material possessions of the American way. And if you vote, vote in our president for another term, we may get to be a third world nation. We're working on it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to me, prosperity is for us to show the fruit of the Spirit to grow in doctrinal purity, to live a life of righteousness. So that's prosperity for us. For the Old Testament saint, it included that, but it included much more. Now, notice the last, or verses 4 to 5, notice the, uh, the way of the ungodly. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Notice, God gives a dismal picture here. The wicked won't have the covenant blessings outlined in verses 1 to 3. Verse 3 in particular. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Remember the solid stuff that falls to the ground and the chaff is blown away. So, that's uh, that's what the wicked he's pronouncing on and he says therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment that is they won't have a leg to stand on in the judgment to accuse God's people anything nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous so that's a dismal picture now the question we should ask ourselves why does God contrast the two ways. Sometimes I've had heard a few people misunderstand the contrast. God pointing out what the way is like for the wicked is to promote the way of the godly. He's saying these are bad things. And that's what happened to wicked people. But the point of that is not just to discuss their unfortunate end. But it's really to promote living godly. That's the point. So, if you notice, this extended thing about the righteous and the wicked in Proverbs, you got the exact same thing it says it's in a larger book. There's a contrast of the way of righteousness and the way of wicked. To me, those things about lady falling are really saying this is not what you want to do. It's disastrous in its end. And uh, it intends to extol virtue, righteousness. The thing I've always asked myself, wow, this must have been a better time than Solomon's life. <laughs> because he wasn't that. Uh, I think in the end of his life he was, but 
uh, for most of his life, you'd think that he had apostatized. But I'm convinced he didn't, uh, mostly because is any writer of Scripture an apostate? He would be the exception. So I think the old Jewish tradition, early uh, Christian tradition, Solomon's swan song on his life was the book of Ecclesiastes. It shows that he repented at the end of his life. Now, that's the view that I thought But I'm hung up on people saying he's an apostate and he's writing scripture. He would be the exception. So, I'm, I'm not arguing for that, but I have to admit, Proverbs is hard to fathom <laughs> when I look at Solomon. Well, the writer here is contrasting the two. And then notice, he wraps it all up in verse 6, a summation, a summary. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Knowing here doesn't mean that God's just aware of them. This type of know is the one of having a personal relationship with. So the Lord knows the righteous in that he has a personal relationship with them. But the wicked will perish. So this special relationship is what carries the Old Testament saint, the New Testament saint on the glory. Uh, so let's. Uh, there's others. Wisdom Psalms here, I lay those out. I, at least I itemize what Psalms are. Look at the content. The godly man is blessed. Or I would, I've got a sermon on this. My big idea is that God's approval provokes godly living. Now we have to be careful with God's approval. Can I say everybody that's generally Christian is already approved in the Son? However, in sanctification, we are living in sanctification for God's approval. So we don't want to cross over those, uh, blend the two. God's approval, God is fully satisfied with us when we repented and believed. So I had his approval there. But I also understand that when we're working out of salvation with fear and trembling, we are working out because God works in us, but we are, in that sense, looking for His approval on our life, that we live pleasing to Him. So, you know, I want to throw that in there just so you'll not think that I'm trying to say that it's as, as we're trying to grow in grace that we're earning God's approval, we're not. We already have it, but I do think there's a sense of sanctification. We are trying to live for His approval, being pleasing to Him. And I see people go in an unhealthy way in one extreme or the other. So, anyway, that's the Psalms. You can see the outline there. Now, I went a minute over time. I apologize for that. But we started praying a minute late. Now, are there any questions before, uh, can I say we break out? <laughs> break up? <laughs> well, if uh, you go through my notes and you see anything, just feel free to call me or send me an email or whatever. I, I think... Thanks, thanks for yeah. Oh, no, I, I enjoyed it. Good class. Yeah, it was, uh, I got to meet some new people and get reacquainted with some old friends. It was good. So, thanks for your attention. I'm glad Arizona could make it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and Eric Menor.
true. <laughs> anyway, I hope you all have a good summer and all those good things. And, uh, don't get road rage.